0: And sit down. And when I watch Tom Morello play guitar in front of Rage Against the Machine, that's how you want to write.
1: Welcome to Popcraft, where we'll autopsy the screenplays behind your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert. And I'm sitting here today with a good friend of mine and a former professor, Robert Ramsey. He is the credited screenwriter of the movie we're going to discuss today, Intolerable. Cruelty as well as life. And I mean, you want to give more of your credits?
0: Oh, there's Man of the House, um, uh, Big Trouble, Soul Men was my last movie in theaters with Bernie Mac and Sam Jackson.
1: I remember one of the funniest little anecdotes you told our class the first time I had you was how you were known for writing so many, like, quote, black movies. As if, if you cannot tell over <laughs> the microphone that uh, Robert Ramsey is in fact a white man.
0: I am a uh, I am a straight white man. I sit at the uh, the the apex of the privilege pyramid. I discovered recently during a diversity workshop at USC. Straight white male Christian. There you go. By by heritage and a few other things. I, I anyway there there are thirteen levels of privilege. And I'm at 13, and I I, uh-huh. I I I felt a little embarrassed about that. I uh, well, it's
1: I, not something you like choose yourself, you know. Through anything, a lot of it is just like no, it's of course how you're born. And, and
0: I don't mean to turn it into a, a conversation about that, but it is interesting to be at at a university right now. As an older straight white man who has written a couple of popular movies with very African American themes and casts both life and soulman are movies that i am super proud of and i i think that they have a lot of authenticity in them that comes uh, straight from my heart but i don't think i would get those jobs today
1: no that's that's almost certainly true yeah it
0: would be it would raise eyebrows yeah and it hasn't been that long but uh, so life came out in 1999 and then soulman came out in 2008 and i think that was just about getting to the last possible moment when i could
1: right. <laughs> sell that kind of project
0: uh and not have people go wait a second have you heard what's going on
1: the distinct like anecdote i remember too that i always found was so funny is that you were I, I don't remember where it was and maybe you can recall but that you were like at maybe it's like an apple store maybe i'm making that up you were talking to someone and they're like oh what do you do like what do you do for a living what have you written do you like have you written anything i know and you told them and you're like and they knew, you know, your movies and loved them. And they were like, I think it was Soulman. It was a Verizon store. Verizon there. I knew it was some technology. Yes, absolutely. Yes, there you're, you go. You're
0: right on it. You have a good memory, Carl. Um, it was at a <laughs> Verizon store. And yeah, he was just kibitzing, you know, we're there at the uh, at the edge of the Hollywood Hills. And, you know, you can always, it never hurts to ask. You in the business kind of thing? He asked. and uh, And I am. And I happened to write a movie that he adores, you know. And he was like, "Wait a second, I got to call my friend." And you know, <laughs> he was like, "I got the the guy who wrote Soulman here in front of me, and you can bet your ass he's a white boy." <laughs>
1: it was so good. And I I oh, I remember the first time hearing that and just losing it in class. It was that's just a classic. That's a classic.
0: It's a a strange thing. Uh, It's a strange thing that we had that opportunity, and it meant a lot to us. And I think it was actually, for us, it was a a blessing to be able to write about a different culture and uh, a different point of view, and to try and inhabit that. Right. I'm probably most proud of those movies. Oh yeah, in that's awesome. And not that I have anything against *Intolerable Cruelty*. I'm quite—I'll <laughs> quite, uh, never, you know, stop mentioning that I, in fact, have my name on that movie. But it's not as personal an endeavor sure. as those two were. Yeah. Which sounds funny because I'm in a you know a white guy with a 13 uh, hierarchy score.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you never know like what projects like you're gonna find your personal connection to and mm. you know your, your intimacy with and what characters you're gonna connect to. I know that's something that I am constantly surprised by. That I'll have an idea and I think it's really great, but it won't like quite hit me on the same way as some other you know projects that then I pursue and I'm like this is this is it. This I'm talking from the heart. On a really personal way. So this was, I mean, getting to intoler intolerable cruelty. It is a reason, tongue twister. Yeah, it always I has with been. It.
0: Oh, I, I don't every once in a while, I call it insufferable cruelty, or <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then insufferable <laughs> bastards, I call intolerable bastards, or you know, yeah. inconceivable bastards, you know. Those words,
1: "Inglorious Bastards."
0: I'm conflating uh, "Intolerable Cruelty" and "Inglorious Bastards" because they both are tongue They
1: are. They're. You know, it's it's all in the same ballpark. There. It's. Um, <laughs> did you originally pitch it, "Intolerable Cruelty," or did you come on after it was pitched?
0: Here's with your writing s- partner at the time. Here, right? here's, here's the chronology of that particular movie. Uh, just to put it in context, "Intolerable Cruelty" I believe came out in 2002.
1: Something like that. Is I that, would have to double check.
0: Uh, uh, I'm almost certain it was 2002. We uh, wrote our last draft in uh, 1993. Oh wow! Okay, so that what is that? 11 years earlier? Wow! Uh, nine years earlier. Than, <laughs> I'm a screenwriting teacher, not a math teacher. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, it took a long time for Intolerable Cruelty to get made. Here's what happened: We had written a A movie, uh, a a script, um, that was our calling card in Hollywood. It was called Destiny Turns on the Radio. And as a script, it was quite well liked. (laughs) Uh, When we finally managed to make that movie, also about nine years after we had written it, we got some of the meanest reviews I've ever read about any movie. Yikes. Uh, You know, it was uh, roundly uh, dismissed by moviegoers and critics alike. So that happened. But what happened... What happens in Hollywood is when you come to town with a script, it circulates and that becomes your brand identity for a while. If, it, right. if it's popular, then you're the guys who wrote Destiny Turns on the Radio. That was a good read. Right. We were in that kind of place right. in our careers in 1989. Or, it was very early in 1990. It was okay. January of 1990. Yeah. We had a lunch. With, that was scheduled by our agent, one of those meet and greets with people who like your stuff. Uh, a creative exec named Lenny Kornberg at Universal had read Destiny Turns on the Radio, and he liked our, our writing, and he wanted to talk to us about writing comedies for Universal. And we had some things to pitch that weren't very commercial, but what I've always noticed as a writer for hire in this town is that they're, they're usually more interested in their own ideas, than yours.
1: Yeah. Anyway,
0: they're yeah. looking for somebody to help them get their idea up the mountain. It can be a good business to help people get their ideas up the mountain, and we weren't opposed to doing that kind of work back then. Anyway, we were sitting at this lunch at Musu and Frank's with Le- uh, Lenny Kornberg, and he said, The head of Universal wants to make a movie about a woman who gets revenge on a divorce attorney. And God bless my writing partner at the time, my best friend from college, uh, my best friend, my best man. Uh, His name was uh, Matt Stone. Still is Matt Stone, by the way. Uh, We (laughs) we just don't write together anymore. We parted ways after our sixth movie was released, Soul Men, in 2008. But back in 1990, sitting at Musou and Frank's, Matt Stone said, he put down his fork and he said, the best way to get revenge on a divorce attorney is to marry him and take him to the cleaners. And uh, I believe he said, seduce him marry him and take him to the cleaners. And that became the mission statement for our our movie. That's awesome. Um, Lenny was instantly gripped. He scheduled a a pitch meeting for a couple of weeks later. We got our act together. And what I, what uh, my contribution to that early effort to get the job, just get a job writing a story about a woman who gets revenge on a divorce attorney Mm -hmm. for universal. Uh, My contribution was, I remember distinctly declaring dude, this one wants to be like big characters. Like, you know, if he's a divor- divorce attorney, he's got to be the best divorce attorney. If she's a gold digger, she's got to be the best gold digger. Oh, yeah. This is not, we're not, we're not looking for shades of beige here. We're looking for, you know, committed colors in creating these characters. And so that's what we started to build with. And then we pitched it. And uh, Hal Lieberman at the Universal bought it. These are names that, you know, or from the past. But there they, they they were names that made people uh, shiver in, in, uh, with anticipation and, and, and hope. He, uh, he liked our stuff. He bought the pitch. We went to work. We did three drafts for Universal. And along the way, one thing that uh, Lenny, uh, as our chief development contact at Universal, always uh, sort of emphasized was the need for constantly escalating the cat and mouse dynamic between mm. the two characters. You know, this is, this is predator and prey, but which one is the predator and which one is the prey kind of game, you know? And, you know, and if you don't honor that, you're not doing your job. And so we finally built this story about Ivan Massey, who unpredictably, unexpectedly falls madly in love with one of his conquests in the courtroom, not the pen. Right. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And, uh, and then, uh, we were done. And uh, they started to uh, shop it around to directors. It bounced around from director to director. It ended up with them. Um, and we worked with people like uh, Jonathan Lynn and Michael Caton Jones. It ended up in Ron Howard's hands for a little while. Oh, wow. Which at the time was a very exciting prospect. Sure. Um, he was at the height of his powers as a director, as a big commercial yeah, director. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And
0: um, Imagine was uh, in full bloom as a company. And that's when we got the call. Yeah, Ron's going to go with some other writers, the Cone brothers. And we were like, the only way you can make this call pleasant is by saying that we're getting rewritten by the Cone brothers. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's got to be anyone. If it's you know? <laughs> got to be somebody. You know, and, you know, weirdly enough, before that, they actually, uh, Universal also had a, uh, a deal with Tom Stoppard, the playwright. Oh, wow. Uh, he's universal class yeah but he was he, he had a contract to sort of glance at their projects and maybe make them better if he could mm-hmm. i'm sure it was sweet as hell <laughs> you know it was around the time that he had touched up uh, shakespeare in love oh, okay. so he was quite the the man yeah he was in, running on running on, you know. the top there but uh apparently according to lenny he read this script and he declined to rewrite it our version of intolerable cruelty on the on the grounds he was in the middle of a divorce at the time oh. but he declined to uh, to rewrite it on the grounds that it was conceptually repellent wow <laughs> that was uh, that was my Heavy one words hour, <laughs> wow. the 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 one time that i've ever probably caught that wonderful writer's attention and uh and the response was conceptually repellent
1: i do okay. have to say that's a hell of a compliment when it comes down to it because i mean if he's calling it that passionately you know you have a good idea there that's you've true. done it it's that's like true actually if, if you've offended someone then like you know especially someone like as like intelligent and like Tom talented Sadie. and who clearly was going through some personal shit which right. by the way you can curse i don't know if i uh made oh, that clear i'll be
0: happy to curse.
1: Fuck shit, <laughs> Um, but that he, you know, that you clearly touched on something just like personal inside him that was like, with what he was going through, it's like, it it was a good idea. (laughs) It's good. (laughs) Um, I love it.
0: So then we got the call that you know that the, the Coen brothers were taking the ball and rolling, um, and we moved on to other things. We did a bunch of other projects for Universal, and then we started working for Castle Rock and uh, some. We moved on to other projects before we actually made any movies. The momentum that we had derived from Intolerable uh, from Destiny Turns on the Radio was then not just sustained and 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 thrust. It it was magnified enormously by uh, having written Intolerable
1: Cruelty. Oh, wow, yeah.
0: Our draft of Intolerable Cruelty was was kind of popular around town. This is before the blacklist or anything, and I'm not saying it would have won the blacklist or any of that stuff but it it had enough chit chat around it to to, yeah. to be a, a a constantly viable project we called it a zombie project it won't live it won't die what you hope for in this business and it's hard to it, maybe some people are better at at making it happen for them but uh finding a community of creatives yeah you know uh, from the financing side uh, all the <laughs> way to you know hair and makeup i suppose you know ultimately some of the filmmakers that I enjoy the most really do tend to end up working with some of the same people over and over again. They yeah. seem to have a system in place It makes things not just easier, but better. Yeah, it, no, it would, absolutely. It would appear. Yeah. Um, and we had made, made a movie. We would made Destiny Turns on the Radio in 1995. We made Life, uh, was released in 1999. And then in around the year 2001, we're working on something. God only knows what. And uh, we were probably adapting Big Trouble, is what we were oh, doing. Oh, yeah. The first novel uh, by Dave Barry. And a, a job that we got from Tom Jacobson, a producer, um, because of Intolerable Cruelty. There you go. And Life. And, yeah. you know, every every project can be a stepping stone. They thought Life was a big hit, and they hired us. And then we were, we were working, and we got this call from Lenny, you know, all these years later, the Coen brothers had a movie uh, at Paramount or somewhere that was budgeted for $90 million. It was based on some crazy book called "The To the Great White Way, To the Great White Sea, I think, uh, by the same writer who did From Here to Eternity. And it was going to star Brad Pitt. And it was like 90 pages of with no dialogue. And it fell through. The, uh, the studio got nervous and pulled the plug. And the Coen brothers were left with an empty slot you know, uh, an available time frame to make a movie. And they were scratching their heads about what to do. And they said, according to the legend, um, hey, we always liked Intolerable Cruelty, that movie that we rewrote. Let's do that with George. We've made, you know, uh, a brother wear our Thou? Right. We, uh, we, we've got him in our back pocket. And uh, so we got this call, you know, the Crumb Brothers are going to direct the damn movie with George Clooney and Catherine Sage Jones. Best call I ever got. <laughs> um, best call bar none uh, well, top five top five best Calls. because that sounded really good. I've always been a cone fan of uh, yeah. cone brothers uh I was in college when they released uh I was the film critic going to uh to school in Chicago. they released Blood Simple, their first movie blew everybody's minds, including mine um and everything they've done since has pretty much electrified me i like to say i'm such a fan i i quite love hell caesar Uh, (laughs) that uh that team seems to separate the uh the
1: The real fans from the the weak the the fakers
0: you may like you know no country for old men but do you like hail caesar that's the (laughs) test of a fan
1: (laughs) i think that maybe even came out when i was in your class Hail Caesar? Hail Caesar. It was right around that time. It was either right after or... Tickled every funny bone I have in my body. I've still... I haven't I, seen it. I quivered
0: still... with uh, conniptions.
1: Well, I mean, let's jump right into Intolerable Cruelty then. God, I'm going to keep stumbling over that one. That's intolerable
0: a... Cruelty. <laughs> so if you say it like a, like a late night radio DJ, you can...
1: That solves it. <laughs> it comes off just golden, man. Yeah. So the movie I found, I mean, I have loved it. I think all of you guys, everyone involved is just firing on all cylinders. And yeah, truly a great cast, right? When I was scrolling through, just like looking at the cast as I was like watching the opening credits, I was like, holy shit. Like, I didn't realize how many just incredible people I know. It was, <laughs> it, it was insane. And oh my God, I... I loved it. And one of the things that I found really interesting about it, uh, and that we kind of briefly touched on before we jumped onto the podcast, is how it sort of has an unusual genre feel to it. Like, I don't feel like it's necessarily as easy to pick. Like, in the broad sense, you'd be like, oh, it's a rom-com, sure. But, like, it's also pretty dark and dramatic at times. Like, it has that thing that... You You know, actually,
0: it has a lot of the tropes of the noir. yeah. A lot of the tropes of a noir by intention, uh, both from our point of view, uh, when we wrote our script and theirs, Uh, you know, they kept that, you know, just, well, once you start with some sort of adultery and a private eye in the bushes snapping pics, you're getting into uh, an interesting landscape, you know, you feel like murder might finally result.
1: Right, <laughs> right.
0: It's the kind of this episode that flares passions and 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 leads to problems. Well,
1: I like how you plant that. That like, I mean, I was it was that in your draft that opening with the the gun, like finding the the adulterer, and then like fire. You know, they, it's Jeffrey Rush, right? Who is like has the gun and is like trying to like shoot the Jeffrey cool boy. Rush.
0: That whole storyline that opens the movie. Yeah, it, it's a frontispiece piece that they created. Okay we started with Marilyn's husband having an affair right okay we just started with (laughs) the old man and his train tracks. Right. Um, God. uh, Which was... uh, That that was the Coen brothers adding the trains.
1: Okay, I was going to say, what the hell is up with the trains? I kept, like, literally asking my sister that aloud as we were watching the movie together. I was like, what is this deal with the trains? Choo-choo. Like, what the fuck?
0: Well, what's what's the deal with the, you know, the colostomy bag and the the, the other thing? Exactly, yeah. Look, I, I think... The Kong Brothers owe as much to Preston Sturges and the the masters of screwball comedy, as they do to. Why is it that I see a little bit of David Lynch in them? There's something. Oh, there's something a little ghoulish and uh, surreal. Arch, you know, yeah. they, they they love to go dark, midnight. Dark.
1: Yeah, and 110 percent, like yeah. with that. Yeah, comedic art, like you said, arch. That's a that's a perfect word for it
0: they have a very stylized uh, universe that they create but also this deliciously wicked sense of humor y- y- it's a wicked sense of humor that they have they're naughty boys those yeah those brothers
1: no but it's interesting you mentioned that you open with the her husband Catherine Zeta-Jones husband because the movie kind of starts twice which was the, the interesting thing is I, I actually as we were like halfway through the movie I was like that opening did that need to be there and then like you saw the role it played and I did like how it like kind of set up that the stakes were going to get violent by the end of it. But that's interesting because that like structurally seems like the more natural place to open the movie. Uh, you're you're actually curious... it, it did.
0: It did have an odd rhythm. I mean, it was. You know, look. It's. It's. It, they slapped a new uh, opening on. You know, our movie. I, listen to me. Our movie. Um, <laughs> believe me. I want. I want everyone who ever listens to this to know that I stand in awe of the Cone Brothers, and I fully acknowledge every contribution they made to this movie. It was enormous. They deserved every credit they got.
1: Yeah. On the absolutely. screenplay
0: and stuff. I mean. M- a goodly portion of the dialogue is theirs. The courtroom scene is theirs. Uh, there you go. What they kept, what they kept was the characters. Yeah, and they the basic arc of the characters. Yeah. that it was intact from our script. Yeah. It wasn't lost. Um, it wasn't even modified
1: really. right. <laughs> um, I mean you had gold there. That's what I, I thought it was so interesting. and again, it gets back to like the fundamental premise and then how you executed it. And well, they it's kept like, a lot
0: of our structure too, because yeah. you know, like I said, the cat and mouse of it all—the the duplicity of a Howard Doyle character, seeming like you yeah. know, coming in, looking like Mister Texas Oil Man. Uh, he's a soap opera star. It's a fabrication.
1: My my sister called that one. She was like, he's an actor. It's like, it's the, I, I can see it. And I was like, I I can see it, but like, I don't know. We'll see. And it, she was a hundred percent on it. I loved that. That was great. That was a, that was a great guy that also just like, again, a perfect plant and payoff. You, you see the television of it all. And then like, then you had the actor come in and uh, man, what a great reveal too, that like they see him on the fucking TV doing his job in his soap opera.
0: Well, you, yeah, you, you know, something's up.
1: Right and exactly. you wait, You're you waiting do. to find out what, right?
0: Because uh, one thing Catherine does do very well, I, I I think she has a very um very sort of rarefied, um almost inaccessible presence in the movie. Yeah. She She's a goddess.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Uh, almost like Venus. Yeah. The goddess of love. You know, moving through this thing, it feels like even as she, as she lies in the sun with her friend, complaining about having lost everything. Right. <laughs> you know, you you sense from her that she will rise again. Right.
1: It's interesting you say that because I think something that just occurred to me that, like, part of what I find so fascinating about it is how the movie, the cat and mouse game of it all and how you guys said that, like, you specifically said that you have to go 100% with these characters. They have to be larger than life. He needs to be the best damn divorce attorney around. She needs to be the best damn, like, gold digger around it's like when you know these what happens when you have you know the unstoppable force meets this immovable object that's right that's and right. It, it i think that's what's so interesting is because you're 100 right the movie would not work i think that's such an interesting insight you had it just wouldn't be as interesting you like you have to have those big personalities who are so competent so that they do like the stakes f- feel concrete and real when they're like going at each other and well
0: it's funny when you're right you kind of end up Proving the rules. Right. (laughs) You know, uh, how do you improve a hero or a protagonist? You know, by elevating the antagonist. Right. Or making them smart and clever and worthy of our interest because they're
1: playing at a high level. 100%.
0: They're playing at a committed level uh, within their story. George Clooney, I think, uh, spoke in Vanity Fair at the time the movie came out, it was one of those Puff articles that's right. intended to sort of promote the movie. Yeah. It's timed with the movie. And uh, he acknowledged uh, and uh, that it's dangerous to play what he called the buffoon. He, he saw Miles Massey. We named the characters Ivan Massey mm-hmm. and Marilyn Hamilton. Uh, we wanted Ivan the Terrible. Oh, and Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> the, the ultimate goddess. I
1: picked up on the Marilyn Monroe thing. Yeah, I wonder, it's the yeah. most obvious reference
0: yeah. in the world. I apologize for being obvious, but we <laughs> no, wanted I like it. to I remind herself every time we typed yeah. her name, she's that powerful. She's the top. She's in full bloom as a woman and, you know, has power over men. Because she does turn Miles Massey, their name, and, you know, they changed it to Miles Massey. I'm, I'm I'm sure they were fine with Ivan, but they love right. alliterative they names.
1: They do. They L- do love you it. You
0: watch the the, the the course of, of Cone movies and, and alliterative alliterative names come up all the time. It's a
1: signature of that. I'm surprised that, they
0: haven't used Robert Ramsey.
1: <laughs> and there you go. They, it's hanging right there for them. It's a low-hanging Duh. <laughs> Talking, you know, we were talking about the structure of it. One of the things that I found really interesting was the way it, it is a rom-com in a sense, but, you know...
0: What a chilly one. Yeah,
1: it, it is. It's so, I mean, we talked about the genre and kind of touched on the tone therein. Oh, but... yeah,
0: I, I'm happy to get back to that. I, you know, there between the com- the comedy and the grotesquery of their images, uh, and they can make the rich of Beverly Hills just as grotesque as right. anything else, right? Doesn't always take that much effort, by the way. Um <laughs> They find this amazingly distinct tone. Their movies play like, you know, like familiar albums. I envy them. I envy the Cone brothers. I want (laughs) what they
1: have. Don't we all? I mean, oh my God. They structure of it is weird in that like sort of the get together moment i mean it ultimately is like a false get together moment but happens well before the third act the big climax of the the movie per se i mean the ultimate getting together still happens at the very end as you'd expect but there is that sort of fake out and you know there are hints that something is amiss you know something uh is not quite right here and it definitely settled with me as i was telling you earlier that like the pacing fell off to me where i was like this can't be the ending. Like this isn't this something. This is not happening right. Like there, there's more here. Like and it's then gonna what happens is there's a
0: Deus Ex Machina moment of of sorts where they hear that uh, Rex Hamilton has died, right? Or is this late? Is that's that, even later? That's even the, later. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you're. I think you're talking about the time when they first get Ve-
1: together in Vegas. Yeah. yeah. So then when they have the yeah. the you know they quickly and he goes get to Nomad.
0: Uh, no man. The yes. gathering so of um, funny. matrimonial yes. attorneys. Oh my God! Is that in no man? Let no man rend asunder. Yeah, except for all the guys in the room. You're um, right.
1: There are so many little clever gags. I mean, that's something that I I don't even know how you begin to talk about. Just like all the little that was the Brothers, gags, by the way. No man,
0: all that that's you know. Great. That speech was yeah. the Cum Brothers. and you know, I I give that fairly high marks. So they they needed to show a massive turn in Kevin. Ca- right. I mean, in Ivan. He's arrogant, he's ruthless, he's Machiavellian, he's almost devoid of morals. Yeah. But the one thing and this was the case in our movie as well, you know, in our version as well. But the one thing that redeems him is his powerful love for this woman.
1: Yeah. Oh, (laughs) for some reason he's found
0: the one. You know, and she's a she's a shark herself. That's what you know he recognizes a kindred spirit.
1: Right. Yeah, it takes so, game to see game. <laughs>
0: look, I, when when we were conceiving this thing, we were uh, on the one hand we were watching Preston Sturges movies, uh, which are screwball comedies uh, from the '30s, things like Palm Beach Story, mm-hmm. classic rhythm scrambling around, and and Clooney matches those rhythms brilliantly. He he yeah. really brought his Cary Grant.
1: He does have that, yeah. That's he a he has point. a he
0: has a neo Cary Grant kind of quality of just. Charm for days, but also a a real game willingness to make fun of himself. He he delights in it, and that's what makes him fun as a good looking guy. Oh yeah, (laughs) tone. So we're watching screwball comedies and loving them, but we were also watching Blue Velvet, and the tone that the tonal shift that happened after Blue Velvet was interesting. Do you think of it as a seminal movie? I, I don't hear any of your your generation.
1: It's not something that our generation now really talks about.
0: Blue Velvet landed like a nuclear bomb in yeah. Hollywood. Uh, for me, for a lot of young filmmakers, I, I, it was like, you can do that on film? Right. You can be that weird? It's unexpected. It's shocking. I think really the Coen brothers come out of that tradition too. They shock us, even as they're playing with their food you know they they, they they amuse us until they shock us
1: right yeah it's that dark humor that like yeah that weird tonal balance the dichotomy between like the grotesque like you said the grotesquerie and the the comedy the screwball comedy of it all it's it, it's interesting it certainly wasn't the tone i expected going into the movie I expected a much more straightforward rom-com, but it, yeah, it has that darkness. I'm curious, was the the dude, the the old dude, uh, who's, like, the head of the law firm, who's, like, creepy and, like, dying and has no... Coon Brothers' invention. Okay.
0: We had Miles uh, Massey, or uh, Ivan Massey, in our script, was the head of the law was firm. Was
1: the head, nice, the top dog. But we
0: had his, his nice. underling, his fawning underling, uh, Nelson. Oh, I love
1: that guy. <laughs> He's, what a great sidekick to be yeah. along. That's a trope that I'm always, like, a sucker for, is just a little like comedic relief sidekick character who shares a tight bond you know with the lead and
0: and gives a a, provides a wonderful um dramatic soundboard to like you know repeat his lines exactly you know emphasize the exclamation points at the end of you know you know hyperbolic statements
1: and i think we're exposed
0: (laughs) (laughs) did the tooth thing Two, the two thing was, uh, we had a, we, you know, we we had something to the effect of, I have a guy to polish my jet, kind of thing.
1: Okay, you know, in there, there's a line. You know, yeah, there's he, a line.
0: we we had something like that, like he was bored, and you know, he would right. he he experienced success in all its glory.
1: Right, it, it, there
0: was nowhere to go. Right,
1: for, for, yeah. for him,
0: you know, he needed something more. That was in our script, but they invented the
1: the tea uh, thing that he's like obsessed the with tea- his teeth. The
0: teeth were the Cone Brothers. Okay. The brightening of the teeth. And that was the introduction of Miles Massey in that Uh, I believe we see his teeth first reflected back in the uh, It's an interesting way to
1: open up. You'd almost
0: expect him to crash during a scene like that. Oh
1: yeah. No, sorry. I wanted to get back to you to the sidekick earlier because you mentioned that his great love for her is almost what redeems him. But I think the thing that makes him likable immediately and, like, makes you care about him is the sidekick. His relationship
0: with this I underlay. think it's
1: clear that they, like, have a bond and that he does care about him. And it's not, even though he's, he's being an obvious Nelson. prick and is doing, like, horribly, horrible things. Like, things you would just be like, if I knew this person, I would hate <laughs> his guts. But he makes her a great, you know, character because he does horrible things and you, like, kind of revel and his evil, but he also still has a level of, you can see the humanity underneath all the evil and their relationship, I think, is a crucial part, making him feel human from the get-go.
0: He's, uh, he's teaching his underling all his evilness, right. you know, his evil wisdom. He's sharing what he knows, it's great. generously. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever watch Succession?
1: I, that's my favorite show on television. Literally, Hannah's going to come on this podcast to talk about it because we're both obsessed with that show.
0: I think Succession and intolerable cruelty. you know they
1: share they share some DNA
0: well I think so um, the the deliciousness of of the successful people at the top their wickedness uh, is somehow well it's fun to watch it's funny it's the it's a great fodder for satire but it also breaks your heart a little bit you you find yourself extending a certain sympathy to the character of miles massey and intolerable cruelty and and to the characters uh, unless you're a diehard occupied wall street kind of you know person um a little bit of your heart goes out to these poor rich people who are suffering in their gilded cages
1: right exactly they create their own cages and like they're unhappy and you can tell there's something broken in them that they're never going to fix
0: and it brings out something human that we something vulnerable that, yeah. we, um, that we do kind of, we can sort of identify with them, right. even though we don't identify yeah with
1: them. It's, I, that ties into something that actually I pointed out to Hannah that I think a lot of what makes succession in stories like it and Intolerable Cruelty, I think, so appealing is that it goes back to even Shakespeare. And it's something like sort of in our DNA where there's this like almost escapist larger-than-life element to the narrative. You're dealing with the richest people on Earth. You're dealing with, like, these crazy people, so you can have these amazing set pieces. They have these incredible jobs. There's just this veneer of beauty, but then you also then get down into, like, the human darkness underneath it. Well, the, and it's, the folly
0: um, of right. power and exactly. hubris and success. And exactly, and it's it, very and Shakespearean it, uh,
1: and very, like, it just has this inherent like, appeal where it's it takes kind of the escapist fantasy of it and then just, like, Shows you the evil underbelly, which is very noirish. We're getting back to the noir is like that's yes. what it's all about that whole genre you know, is about showing the you know the underbelly if, of what this you, glitzy city is.
0: If you if I if I go to take those pictures of your husband when he's away on Tuesday nights and you don't know where, it's gonna be you're not gonna like them. <laughs> you're not gonna like those pictures.
1: Speaking of the PI, did you guys write the yes, Gus? Schainer?
0: Gus Patch uh, was the character in our script. We named him after a crane that we saw as we were driving through Santa Barbara one day in 1990, and we had just gotten the job, and we are like, there's a crane, and I don't know why they do this on cranes, but they put the name... uh, I don't even know what kind of names they are. It almost sounds like the names of airplanes or something. But this crane was stretched out, and it said, Gus Patch and I said, that is a great name for a detective.
1: (laughs) You were right. You 100% agreed on that one. That is a great name. He... Well, you know, I, knew. You, I was like, it's be a character a in the, when
0: when the character when the, when you name a character and the, and and the Cone Brothers leave it, you've done something you know. right.
1: That's so true. <laughs> that's so true. That's that's the best sort of compliment. That's how you know you've nailed it. Wow, they didn't change it. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Uh, I know uh, he was so funny. They just the,
0: you're you're gonna I'm gonna nail your uh, ass. Uh, yep, yep. That was a nice little runner that we didn't they they created. It. God,
1: yeah. And then the ending was that was that them or was that it's you? it's kind guys? of
0: straight out of Chinatown, by the way. You which know, which I, part? Have you seen Chinatown?
1: I have, yeah, not in years. Yeah, I,
0: I, I saw it again recently, and I was I was struck by just how iconic that the suspicious wife sitting in a private detective's
1: office is. Right.
0: Oh, yeah. Because yeah. that's the kind that's of, prote- that's
1: the, you know, I mean... That goes back before Chinatown. That's, yeah, you know, no. that's... Um, way, wait uh, Maltese Falcon, you know, Absolutely. all the classic noir movies. It started, it movies. started
0: yeah. a long, long time ago. But it's such a powerful image, and it it just, it lingers. And and that's not, that's not a Preston Sturges image. It's, no, it is not. It's <laughs> actually, Preston Sturges is more of the the wacky, he's more interested in, in succession kind of landscape. right. Yeah. Nancy Myers calls it Rich World. She yeah. says, I make my movies in Rich World. It, it serves it's a fun the, world. Uh, I mean, well, it's... It, it's been popular since the dawn. Uh, look, I mean, we all want to go and see how Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers look in the right. perfect outfits. Right. And the perfect dance floor with a beautiful orchestra behind them. You know, we want to see other things, too. We want to see all aspects Absolutely. of human nature. Absolutely. But there is something just thrilling. Especially right. in the depths of a Depression back in the 30s. Yeah.
1: Or, you know,
0: times like these. Yeah. When life isn't that easy. No. And uh, we want to be taken out of our heads and shown something we don't see.
1: Yeah, the glitz and the glamour of it all. You know,
0: who are these oligarchs that make these decisions and sometimes even run for president and win? You know, uh, Succession owes something to Trump and his family. A lot, his family. Yeah. But there's... It's quite a powerful example of satire. Oh, you know, yeah. Which doesn't succeed that often in Hollywood.
1: No, it does not. It, I mean, I think because it's so easy to do poorly, but it, it definitely, you're right, it's not something that lights the fire under a lot of audiences.
0: But once again, delighting in the, the frailties, the weaknesses, the, the pettiness, and uh, the undeservedness of wealthy characters yeah. behaving badly.
1: absolutely I think wealthy
0: characters behaving badly
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's a it's a genre unto itself you know like you said we love it. it I mean it goes back it's it's a classic. There's
0: something about watching a the, the son of a billionaire who's a billionaire himself going on a drug binge in succession that is it just brings us a thrill. It's just different from watching somebody else go on a drug binge. hundred percent,
1: a hundred <laughs> percent. The tone's just it's just different. We we revel in it. We're entertained by it. We feel for them at the same time. It's, uh, they it's a they can afford rehab, right? Exactly. <laughs> He'll be fine. <laughs> He'll work it out. Pulling us back, I think, God, I love the character of Gus. That, I knew that had to be a Robert Ramsey character. They, <laughs> I was like, yeah, you mean to tell me the writer of Suleman? <laughs> uh-huh, that's, that's his character right there. Uh-huh, and Cedric the Entertainer. I mean, he's hilarious in everything. So Gus, I think, perfectly sort of embodies what the movie is in terms of, like, he is that sort of noir archetype, but parodied, like, flipped upside down. Um, so you're taking the dark underbelly and flipping it upside down again to just exactly. like shake up I, and the gears, and like, they do
0: that very nicely with the um, with the hitman uh, Wheezy Joe.
1: That's so true, so um, true.
0: And we did have a hitman in ours. But he wasn't as funny as We See Joe, and I don't remember how he ended in our script. Uh, I do love the, the, just the yeah, we, What a way to die! It for the an plan was of... was definitely theirs. That is very Coen Brothers. Very yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and as is the splatter of blood on the back of the wall. Yeah, you know, I mean, they go oh, for yeah. they go for the e moment. You right. know, they like oh, it. Yeah. They rejoice in it. They and, do, <laughs> and as do I. By the
1: way, you got to yeah some something, something primal in us that's a little little splatter of blood and I think the one thing that you racing. can you can make a mistake
0: with in entertainment and in any aspect of it is being too polite, yeah too careful.
1: It's can, good to have a little edge, you yeah, know? you
0: gotta crack some eggs,
1: you know that reminds me of something that you have now told me actually multiple times once in our class way back four or five years ago now, um which is weird to think about and then,
0: yeah, it's been a while,
1: yeah. And then um, when you were helping me with the script, actually, uh, not too long ago that I'm still working on, actually, and I I think I finally cracked, but that too often, like, early writers stray away from melodrama. And and I think what you mean by that is, you know, because I think melodrama has a a negative sort of connotation It does, absolutely. And I think what you mean is, like, leaning into the emotion and, like, letting, not, like, trying, you know... So hard to be subtle that you lose all emotion, and it's just like no one understands how anyone, like who anyone is, what anyone is like fighting for. You know, I get and... I
0: get annoyed when I read not annoyed, but I I, I get frustrated uh, as a reader when I read students' work and they're being not just vague but sort of indecisive, and you know, and, right. and I call it sort of arguing over shades of beige. You know, right. which like, who the fuck cares whether it's that one or that one? It's beige. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, Give me a color I need to, I can really identify. You know, right. give me a hard blue. Give me a good corner on that plot turn. Right. Give me vivid, easy to understand movements at first. So I get the force of the thing, the yeah. thrust, the, the, where the momentum is going and where I need to worry about, the, you know, yeah. characters and their, and right. their missions.
1: That's a great point that I, I have had to struggle to learn at times is like early on when you're getting started if the audience doesn't understand why the character is feeling a certain way like they're not going to feel it like they're not going to connect at all so you have to lean into sort of more straightforward emotions to an extent like you even look at succession which delves into really complicated emotions and really complicated emotional situations truly for those first few episodes yes the, the the familial situation is clearly complicated but you understand it's like kendall has a fucked up relationship with his dad in this, in the case and, of almost, a, color, yeah, like like
0: like, like 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 grand, you know, Greek, Shakespearean, right, exactly. Ethical, oh, it's it's, it's so up. Shakespearean, you
1: know, and and I think I think there's something <laughs> it, Shakespearean not, actually it's, about it's
0: not a it's not it's not any shade of beige. It's no, a, it's a it's, it's a, very specific, and you're it's like it's ba- very dark. It's color. meant to
1: make you feel sad for Kindle, like that. He, clearly, he's a sad, broken person who like. Has a dad who's, you know, not gonna treat him with the respect that he feels he deserves, and and that he's kind of pathetic over it. And then in intolerable cruelty, you know, you that like opening up by painting, you know, the characters with that sort of callous edge like, sets them up for their arc, you know. So you understand like what you're supposed to feel. So down the line, like the payoff is that much clearer. And when things are getting complicated, when it's oh, I've fallen in love with this woman. Oh, now this woman has turned on me, blah blah blah, you know, she's framed me. Like you understand the the complicated emotions. You have to start somewhere. You know, start with, you know, making you feel sad for the characters, start with you getting angry with the characters, to then build up to the more like nuanced level. Right. I think
0: on. you can be subtle in your in your rewrites. Yeah. You know, you can you you can start to, you know, exp- express things with more subtle elegance, maybe. In a second or third rewrite but for a first draft it's not a bad idea to just go i will find you you know if it takes a hundred years i will find you right. kind of melodramatic statements at the end of state uh, at, at the end of scenes to sort of for clarity create the the, the momentum that you're looking yeah. for the kind of yeah. the kind of passions that are required for a rock and roll event to happen i think sometimes about you know when i watch my friends play guitar around a fire pit or something Mm -hmm. and and when i watch tom morello play guitar in front of rage against the machine that's how you want to write you want to play guitar like it's the only thing you're doing in the world at that moment and i think melodrama (laughs) lends to you know helps with that
1: i have a very feel very strongly that melodrama to an extent is the way that you're like gonna connect to people the most powerfully you know because you want to feel those melodramatic elements shakespeare wrote melodramas yeah they i and that's not to say again like you said that it has to be so you know aggressively you know soap opera. right there's don't a difference bad, exactly
0: but don't 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 be embarrassed by melodrama if right. it serves your purpose you know if, they, yeah. if it ends a scene well let it be that
1: if, mm-hmm. yeah exactly you can earn it. Like, uh, melodrama is a useful tool that I, I definitely, I agree. I think a lot of beginning writers, and you certainly saw it at USC. And, and I know I did So it.
0: careful to not, like, right. specify whether it's this or that. Right. Because neither one is right, you know. And I get it. It's a youthful thing. We're trying to invent a new language, a new way of living. Everybody goes through it. Right, um, and and by necessity, it, it serves a purpose, you know. Because you're get, scared of being you're,
1: bad you're, is, what, is it what it is. Is it's insecurity, well, you know, and the writer. That's the
0: worst thing for a writer.
1: Is you're
0: getting you, you get, scared of being yes. bad? You're insecure, stops you're never in right. And then you're still bad every time. Yeah, yeah it doesn't. It improve doesn't, The situation. No,
1: it doesn't. You have to get. Maybe you'll be surprised. Maybe it'll be awesome. Or maybe it will be bad. And then, like you said, you go back and you rewrite it. That's what Jack Epps. You know, writing is rewriting. And that, that's one exactly. of the most important you know, lessons, you know, I think a writer can learn, frankly. All right. Well, I mean, thank you for coming on this podcast. This was delightful, super fun.
0: I enjoyed Dude. the hell out of it, Carl. Thank you for having me.
1: Is there any social media you want to share with people out there?
0: Oh, dear. You're talking to a 58-year-old man who, uh, who looks at the screen too much already. <laughs> I, I don't know what I would even say to that question okay um but if you want to email me i can be found Uh, i don't think it's too hard to find my email at usc (laughs) there you go i teach screenwriting at usc in the school of cinematic arts and very well i might add well you were a fine student too so don't let that uh it was a good combination
1: (laughs) it was thanks as always for listening to this podcast please consider donating to the Patreon, link below. Follow me on social media. All of this will be in the liner notes. Until next time, I've been your host, Carl Albert, and this is Paul Crafts.